For those of you that are married, is your marriage more like a tug of war or a partnership of holding hands? Is your family more like a tug of war or like a partnership? In Ephesians 5, where we're going to go today, Paul talks about how to make your marriage a partnership and not a tug of war. So if you turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, I also want to say as you're turning there, I feel so encouraged as your pastor, as you cheered for my wife and cheered that I would lose, it's just really, as I uh, give the invitation at the end of the service, you're welcome to come forward and repent and get right with God and all of that. Ephesians chapter 5, we've been in a series of messages for some time from the book of Ephesians. The first part of the book focuses primarily on doctrinal content, what it means to be in Christ. We've said that the book of Ephesians functioned as a survival guide for believers who were living under horrendous conditions in the city of Ephesus trying to serve the Lord. The second half of the book focuses on taking what we learned in the first half of the book and applying it. To everyday life. And in particular, in the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians, Paul is going to move to applying it to family life. What does a spirit-filled marriage look like? Now, let's set the stage and frame the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians addresses the church at Ephesus. And that church at Ephesus was facing, in terms of family life, an extremely difficult situation. It was the center of the worship of Artemis, which was the god of Ephesus. There was a huge temple there, and that temple was known for what was called cultic prostitution. In other words, they would literally go down to the temple and engage in acts of prostitution, and that was their form of worship. And so there were all kinds of cultic prostitutes that lived in the city of Ephesus that worked literally out of the temple. And so this is the moral climate that you've got in the city of Ephesus that these young Christians are up against. In addition to that, Greek culture, which permeated the city of Ephesus, basically treated women like they had no value, they were of no good, and marriage was just basically a legal arrangement that didn't mean much of anything. Now, the Romans took the Greek culture as it came to family and to married life, and they just basically carried it over and, if possible, made it worse for them. Again, women had no rights to speak of at all in the culture, and the men, in many cases and in most cases, saw their wives as nothing but literally baby factories to make children while they kept all these concubines around them, and that's what they used for their own pleasure. And the wives were literally told to basically get with the household slaves. And, I mean, it was just a miserable situation that they were living in in Ephesus. And so what Paul is introducing here, when he writes the book of Ephesus and he speaks to family life, is a whole new concept of how to do marriage and how to do family. Now, we tend, a lot of times nowadays, in a modern American culture where we see the disintegration of the American family, and we say, man, we ought to go back to the way it was, you know, 30 years ago or 50 years ago, and I remember the way it used to be. 
the Christians in Ephesus could not go back to the way it used to be because there never was a time when marriage was held in high regard and people were trying to honor their marital commitments. There was nothing to go back to. All you had to go back to was the mess that the Greeks had given to the Romans. So this is something brand new that is being introduced, and they are trying to literally swim upstream and live Christian lives in a wholly new concept. So when people looked at these Christians in Ephesus and they saw them trying to honor the bounds of marriage and play within the bounds of marriage and do what Paul's going to talk about here, they would have said, you're weird, you're strange, and we've never seen anything like this before. You're a whole new counterculture that has come on the scene here in Ephesus. That's what they are up against, and that's what they're facing. Now, there are two prerequisites, and I'll go through these later in the message, but I want you to hear everything that Paul's going to say here comes from a new perspective, and this new perspective is grounded in two areas. Number one, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, prefaces to what he says about the family and about marriage, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We looked at this a few weeks ago. So what he, he moves from that into his directions and instructions concerning marriage and family life. But I want you to catch this. When he talks about being filled with the Spirit, he moves directly from the fullness of the Spirit into his teaching on marriage and the family. What he is saying and what he's trying to point out to us is the Spirit-filled life is first of all lived out in marriage and in family. So often what we do is we think about being Spirit-filled. Well, I'm going to come to church to get filled with the Spirit. Or I'm going to, you know, get filled with the Spirit and then go to church. And we tend to associate the fullness of the Holy Spirit exclusively with religious or church-related events. I need to be filled with the Spirit because i got to teach Sunday school this morning. I need to be filled with the Spirit because I'm going to, you know, lead worship. I need to be filled with the Spirit, etc. I mean, on Sunday mornings I get up, I know i got to preach in a few hours. I need to get filled with the Holy Spirit because i got to be in front of a congregation in a few weeks. But what he's saying here is when you get up in the morning and you step into your marriage... When you continue in your marriage, you need to be filled with the Spirit first in your marriage and first in your home. When you go to to parent, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The fullness of the Holy Spirit is first of all for family life, and then it spills over into all the other areas of our lives. The second thing that Paul is going to say here is that marriage and family life is framed in the model of Christ and His church. In other words, when you look at the Lord Jesus Christ and how He relates to the church... That is the model for marriage. Now, I want you to think about this. How many of us who claim to be Christians and followers of Jesus look at our marriages and at our families and say, I need to be filled with the Spirit in my marriage and in my family? That's what a Christian marriage is about, being filled with the Spirit as we relate to each other. And how many of us look at the model of Christ in the church and say, that is the model for my marriage? Most of us, if we don't think about it, default and go to a secular model. And the secular model, the world model, is the tug of war. That's the world model, the tug of war. Christ's model is Christ in His church. And so we've got to ask ourselves that question. A lot of times when I'm working with a young couple that's looking to getting married, one of the questions that I ask them amongst a ton of questions that I ask them as we're going through the marriage uh, premarital counseling, I ask them, why do you want a minister to marry you? 
And if they plan on getting married in a church, why do you want to get married in a church building? And usually what they'll say to me is this, because I want a Christian family. Well, forgive me for saying this, but being married by a minister in a church will get you a Christian home just as surely as hanging out in a barn is going to make you a horse. It's not going to happen. And just having a minister perform the wedding ceremony and doing it in a room like this is not going to give you a Christian family. It is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives and in our marriages, and it is modeling our family life after Christ and His church. And what that means, that's what produces a Christian marriage and a Christian home. So Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. Uh, the sermon outline is in your Rocky Mount Connection. I apologize to you. We didn't print enough of them this morning. Uh, we're coming out of COVID attendance, and our attendance is growing back, so we got to start printing more uh, bulletins, which is a good challenge to have. All right, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that's quoting from the book of Genesis. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, I was teaching this passage of Scripture yesterday in our jail ministry, and uh, the guys looked at me and they said, I'm really glad that, you know, you've got to do this tomorrow and, and you know, uh, et cetera. And uh, they were going to make sure that it was a place for me uh, there at the jail in case I get kicked out of the building this morning after having preached uh, this sermon. Uh, before we get into this issue of, of submission, I want you to follow me on this. The reason we struggle so much with the concept of submission is we're putting on secular glasses when we read this passage of Scripture instead of biblical glasses. If we put on biblical glasses, we see it through the prism of Christ and His church and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But what we tend to do is read this passage and interpret it and apply it exclusively in terms of secular lenses, which is the tug of war. Now, Paul talks, first of all, about mutual submission. He says, submitting to one another and a reverence for Christ, and then talks about wives submitting to their husbands. All of us, if we're really honest, despise the word submit. We don't want to submit to anybody or anything at any time. And even when we have to submit, we tend to begrudgingly do it. Why do we hate the concept of submission so much? First of all, it's because our own nature 
by nature, we don't want to submit. Second, if we've been hurt by someone, or if we've seen someone that we care about be hurt by someone, we don't want to submit because submission brings with it the idea of vulnerability. And if I've been hurt, I don't want to become vulnerable to somebody else who could take advantage of my vulnerability and hurt me. If I've seen someone else be submissive in a relationship and get hurt and abused, victimized, etc., then I don't want to submit or I don't want to see them submit because I believe that that submission opened the door to vulnerability that was taken advantage of. Another reason we struggle with the concept of submission is a lack of respect or trust in the person we submit to. If I don't trust someone, then I don't want to submit to them. When Helen and I got married, I realized that she and I were going to be very vulnerable to each other. The potential for me to hurt her and her to hurt me was very high. I grew up in a home where my parents separated when I was in the seventh grade, divorced when I was in eighth grade, and I lived through a tremendous amount of family conflict, and I put off marriage until my late 20s, and one of the reasons that I did that was I didn't want to get hurt like I had seen my mother hurt, and I didn't want to hurt somebody, and so if there's a lot of hurt there, there's a sense of, man, I don't know if I can trust that person, so we struggle sometimes with a lack of respect or trust in a person. Now, the word submit was a military term in its day, and it meant to place oneself under, but it also was the idea here of being done voluntarily. Now, notice what Paul says here. He speaks, first of all, in verse 21, and Paul, the Apostle Paul is the writer of the book of Ephesians. He speaks, first of all, of mutual submission. And I believe what Paul is driving at in this passage where he's submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ and then talks about Christ and his relationship with the church being the example of how a family and how a marriage is supposed to function is that what he's driving at here is partnership. Getting away from the tug of war and being in a partnership with each other and growing in that partnership with, that, with each other. But now we tend to struggle with this concept of partnership and submission in marriage. Some of the reasons we do that, this is not an exhausted list, but one of them is birth order. If you grew up in a home, and most of the time, not always, but most of the time, the firstborn sibling in a family is the one who tends to make the decisions and lead out in the family, etc. Particularly as the parents get older, uh, they tend to bequeath to the firstborn sibling more and more decision-making. That's not always the case, but it's not unusual at all. For example, if I'm working with a family during a funeral or sickness or whatever, when I show up, that the oldest sibling there is the one who's making the decisions and calling the shots. Uh, and so if your birth order puts you in the position of you're the leader in the family of origin that you came from, you're just naturally going to tend to function that way in a marriage and in a family because that's how you were conditioned uh, when you were growing up in your family of origin. Another aspect is your role in your family of origin. Were you the person when you were growing up in your family that was the leader or were you the person who just rolled with the punches? Whatever was said, you just showed up, and your job was to show up and smile and say yes. Uh, or was your job to show up and say this is how it's going to be done, and this is the way we're going to do it. Uh, so your role in your family of origin 
Uh, one of the things that I do with couples in premarital counseling is I ask them a series of questions and they have to draw a diagram on a chart for me of who had the most decision-making in the family and how that laid out. And then they have to draw sort of a diagram as to how that's gone on throughout their lives. And one of the reasons I require that is I want them to see that if you've been the one calling the shots and running the show since day one, you're probably going to act like that in marriage. It's just a natural thing to do. Uh, if you were the one who just sat back like the wallflower and said, yes, 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 that's probably the way you're going to function in your marriage. And if you don't understand that, then you're going to get into marriage and all that stuff's going to start playing out and you're going to wonder what in the world is going on. And if you really want to see an interesting marriage, and if you're in a marriage like this, don't smile, don't raise your hand, do anything else, all right? But you put two folks together who grew up running the show and calling the shot and they get together in a marriage... You are in for some fireworks displays from time to time, all right? Because there's going to be these button heads with each other. You know, I ran the show where I grew up, and I'm running here. Oh, no, you're not. I'm running the show. So you're in for some nice fireworks situations. I had a couple I was working with years ago. I have never seen two people in a marriage who were so similar. They had... I mean, they were just alike, and I have never seen two people fight the way they could fight. You did not want to be around when the fighting got started, etc., because it was not opposites attracting. It was the exact same that came together in that situation. So those are things, if your personality type, whoever tends to have the stronger personality tends to dominate the decision-making. Now, when I say this stuff, some of you are sitting back and saying, Pastor, what you're talking about is not biblical. I'm talking about psychological, sociological realities. Okay? I'm just talking about what gets played out. Regardless of what we may say, this is the way we tend to play it out. And if you've got a strong personality, and nothing wrong with having a strong personality. Please don't misunderstand me on that. But if you and I have got a strong personality, we're going to tend to play that out in marriage. And uh, we have to take you know, account of that and deal with that and address that because that's just the way we tend to function in life. If you've got a strong personality, if you've got a, a personality that's not as strong, again, you're going to be, tend to be more laid back, etc. Another aspect that impacts us is who makes the decisions in a crisis because it is very difficult for the person in a marriage or in a family who is the decision maker in a crisis. This is who we look to to make the decisions, to hold the family together, to get us through this. It's very difficult to have one mate who's the decision maker, and then when the crisis is over with, flip the switch, and it goes back to the other member of the, uh, of the marriage making all the decisions. Usually the crisis decision maker is going to tend to be the decision maker all of the time. Because you just naturally default to that person. And, and, and I say this because, again, from, from 30 years of pastoral ministry, when I get called into hospital situations and into uh, funerals and deaths in particular, there's usually one member of the family that I'm relating to, and that person is the crisis decision maker. They're having to make all the tough decisions. They're having to plan everything. They're having to ha carry the whole weight of what's going on on them, and everybody else is sort of sitting back waiting for them to make that decision. Not that they don't support them, but the crisis decision maker tends to be the one who is looked upon as the one who's supposed to carry the authority in the family. Now notice what he says here. Submitting to one another, verse 21, and notice what he prefaces that with, out of reverence for Christ. Then to verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands. And then notice what he adds, as 
to the Lord. In both cases, Paul ties submission straight to how we relate to the Lord. And this is what I think Paul is driving at here. He is saying, when you relate to each other in marriage life and in family life, you don't just look at your spouse. You look primarily at the Lord. It is out of reverence for Christ that we submit to each other. It is out of my relationship with Jesus that I relate to my spouse and to my family. It is out of a partnership with the Lord that I live out the submission. It is out of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. When we are relating to one another out of the fullness of the Spirit and having first submitted to Christ and everything that I'm doing in relationship to my spouse is under the discipline and the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ and to His honor and to His glory, that sets up an entirely different dynamic than in a tug-of-war situation. But folks, so many times what goes on in our families, and I'm talking about our church-going Christian families, is this. We come to church and we do church, and then we carefully close our Bibles and go home, and for the next six days, this has little to nothing to do with what's going on in our marriages and our families. And that's the reason our marriages and families so often don't look any different than our secular counterparts, because we're living out of the secular in the home instead of living out of the Word of God and out of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's talking about here. Submission as to the Lord. Reverence for Christ. It is under the Lordship of Jesus Christ that we are relating to one another. Now, Paul talks here about husbands and wives. And let me say quickly as an aside, all through here he talks about husbands and wives and how they relate to each other. He is assuming that there are husbands and wives. He is assuming marriage and the commitment of marriage. We live in a day and age where the idea of getting married is sort of being trashed. You just live together. Even a lot of young Christians I'm discovering are like, well, we just live together. And everybody's doing it, so that makes it okay. Folks, when Paul looked at these believers in Ephesus who if anybody had an excuse to live together, it was them, because everybody else in Ephesus was doing it. He does not say, well, it's okay if you're imitating the culture you're part of. No big deal. He says, husbands and wives, this is how you live together. He assumed marriage, and he commanded marriage. Why? Because God created marriage, and God commanded marriage, and God put marriage together. And I don't care what the culture says. The culture never trumps the word of the living God. It never has, and it never will. But our calling is to role model in marriage and in family life Christ's love for his church. Now, next Paul talks about the husband being the head. How is Christ the head of the church? And how do husbands live out what it means to be the head? First of all, Christ is the head of the church by his character. When we think of Jesus and we look at Jesus, what do we think of? We think of character. He's holy. We can trust him. We can respect him. Because we trust the character and the integrity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next, when we think of Jesus, we think of servant leadership. 
Jesus was a leader. Everywhere you look on the pages of the Gospels, he's a leader. But how is he a leader? He is not a leader by hoarding it over people and beating them into the ground, etc. When you look at the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ, you see him on his knees. You see him gently touching people, healing people, teaching people. You see him leading by gently guiding people and helping people and being there. It is a servant leadership model that you see in the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. We as husbands have to allow the Lord to develop his character in us. We have to live out that servant leadership model. And in, when we do that, we go to verse 31 where he talks about the one flesh relationship. But the only way that we get to a one flesh relationship that oneness and that partnership, that new thing that God wants to form in a marriage, the only way we get to that is by living out what he's talking about here. Then in John, Jesus led by his prayer life. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for the church. He went before the Lord and he prayed for his church, for his people. Those of us who are husbands, our call from God is to be a prayer warrior for our church and for our families. We are called by God to be prayer warriors for our families. And men, if we are not the prayer warriors, we need to be for our children and for our families. We have opened the door for Satan to do a lot of spiritual warfare and be successful at it in our families, and in our marriages. Jesus prayed for his church. There is no idea here of inequality. There is no idea here of slavish obedience. Verse 24, it says, "Love, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, what this requires of us is that we have to leave the individual paths that we are on in order to forge a new path together. When we refuse to do that, we can't create a new partnership. So we have to be willing to leave the past, coming together to form that new relationship. Now, Jesus models with his father what he's talking about here. He models with his father what he's talking about about here and the relationship that Jesus had with his father and how did that relationship pan out he did what the father led him and guided him to do how does that pan out in marriage marriage is ultimately and supposed to be for believers a journey it is a journey where we are discovering what God has for us in our family what the Lord has for us in our marriage what God has for us in walking and living for him and we are living out that reality every day in our marriages. Now, guys, you may be asking, how in the world do I live that out, and how does that happen? Number one, men, walk with the Lord. And number two, let me encourage you to find a mentor. Find someone, find a man who's living for the Lord, and just attach yourself to him. A guy that's got some experience and learn all you can from him. Uh, when I moved towards marriage 30 years ago, I didn't have an example in my home of origin. And so I had to go find some guys 
who had been at marriage successfully for quite a while, who were living for Jesus, and asked them questions and learned everything I could from them. Let me encourage you to do that. God will give you those guys. Ask them questions. Learn from them. Let them mentor you in this. Now, how does the Holy Spirit enable all of this to happen? Verse 18, he says, Be filled with the Spirit, as I've said earlier. That happens first in our marriages and in our homes. Secondly, he says, Encourage each other. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, it's encouraging each other in the Lord, finding in each other what God has placed in your spouse's life, in the lives of your family members, and, and moving with them in that. Verse 20, he says, giving thanks in all things. When was the last time we were thankful for the people in our family? It is so easy to focus on what, how they get on my nerves and how they irritate me and what didn't happen and how it didn't happen, etc. Instead of saying, I am first of all going to thank God for my wife, for my husband, and for God placing them in my life and what God's doing in their life. I'm going to thank God for my children. I'm going to thank God for my parent. And I'm going to thank God for what God's doing in their lives and that we can share in life together. So focus on the appreciation and the thanksgiving first. Now, I want to pause for one final thing. Many of you that are listening to me in this room, chances are as well as are listening to me in some form of social media, are saying, Pastor, all this sounds great. But I have a spouse that does not live for the Lord, has no intentions of living for the Lord. And how in the world do I live the reality of of this passage out when I'm in a situation like that? And the first thing I'm going to say to you is I don't have an easy answer for that. I wish I did. I wish I could say A, B, C, and D, and it's all going to fall into place, but can't do that. This is what I would say. Number one, pray for them. Pray for them. And trust God to do what only God can do in His time and in His way. Second, just live this out the best that you can. But this is a journey that we are on. It is not a completion or a destiny that we achieve overnight. And so I would encourage you to do the best you can to live it out in the context of realizing that this is a journey. Some journeys are slow. Some journeys are fast. But it is a... journey and sometimes journeys are painful and they take a while to get there now some of you listening to me are in situations you'd say you know I tried and I gave it my best shot and everything blew up in my face and I really agonized and I don't really know what to do with Ephesians chapter 5 and my response to you first of all and that is I lived through that in my own home when I was growing up with watching what happened there and the busting up of my parents marriage And all I can say to you on that point and what I saw lived out in us is you can't make decisions for somebody else. And you cannot live somebody else's life. They have to make those decisions for themselves. They have to live that. You can't manipulate or dictate to somebody else. We're responsible to the Lord for ourselves and only for ourselves. And the grace of God will be sufficient each day. That said... God's grace is something sometimes we have to sort of search to find and live in. Uh, I know when my dad left our home growing up, uh, we had some, some tight days when we weren't quite sure where, how the bills were going to get paid, uh, et cetera. And, and we didn't know how we were going to get it through the next month or the next year. In fact, we didn't even contemplate the next year sometimes. We're just happy to get through uh, the next week or the next month. Uh, so what do you do in those kind of situations? You do trust in the Lord. And I watch God come through over and over again. 
in small ways, sometimes big ways, but I watched the faithfulness of God. I remember our home church was having a building program, and they were asking everybody to commit to giving to the building program. Uh, well, here we are trying to, <laughs> to get through from month to month and where we're going to give to a building program. And I, I remember my mother, uh, we were driving out of the church parking lot one Sunday, driving home from church, and they, we were coming right up to commitment time. And I remember my mother said this. She said, they've asked for a three-year commitment. We're going to give $300, $100 every year. And then my mother made this statement. She said, if we can't do that, we ain't going to make it anyway. So uh, <laughs> we, we're going down the tubes anyway. So uh, we're going to step out and trust God for the next three years that we can give $100 to this building program. Now, that seems small and insignificant, et cetera. But for us, it was a huge, huge step to try to trust God for $100 a year over and above all the other expenses. But the Lord enabled us to do that. Uh, because God provided uh, step by step and day by day. His grace will be sufficient, uh, but we have to hang in there with His grace as He gives it to us. And, and sometimes His grace is a struggle to find. It's sweet when we find it, but sometimes it is a struggle to find. So I conclude today the way I begin. In our families, is it a tug of war or is it a partnership? The Ephesians chapter 5 is how we work at getting to the partnership. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to thank you this day for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. We want to thank you for Jesus and for how good he is in our lives. Lord, we want to ask that you would help us in family life, which is, Lord, the most challenging relationship that we have, the most challenging situation that we are in, that, God, you will help us in our families to, Lord, walk with you, to know you, to serve you, to experience what you have for us, Lord, to find the partnerships that, Lord, you want us to find and to work at those partnerships. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I need a partnership with the Lord Jesus Christ. I need to trust him and follow him and walk with him. Then I want to encourage you this day to choose to make that decision. To say to him, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. In just a few moments as we sing a song of invitation, I invite you to walk the aisle of this church and today give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I'd love to pray with you about life's most important decision. If you feel that God is calling you to be part of our church family and to serve the Lord here with us, we invite you to come. Let the Lord do in our lives right now whatever He desires to do and accomplish. Father, have your way with us now, we ask in your name. Amen.